you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 4, we will be there. Um, let me just briefly set up where we're going today. In the passage before us, there is a, a specific topic at hand, and then there is a larger, broader principle that we can draw from this. So the immediate specific topic at hand is a correct understanding of Christian leaders and Christian leadership. Um, we've been on this topic for a couple weeks now, and we've seen that Paul is correcting the Corinthians and their tendency to judge and assess and align themselves with their various preachers. So they each tended to have their favorite celebrity preacher among them, and they, they made a big deal about this and said, I'm with, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, and there was all sorts of issues in this. And Paul's been a digging into this, correcting this from various angles. But today, he takes a very different approach. In essence, he says, your judgment, your assessment of your various leaders isn't what defines them and shouldn't be what compels them because they aren't ultimately serving you but God. And in saying this, he teaches us and conveys a larger, broader principle that we see in Scripture about our own identity and worth, how we see ourselves, um, this issue of identity that is fundamental to our society today and actually fundamental to Scripture as well. So we'll go through both that specific topic and then get into this broader principle. So we'll start with verse 1, read the first couple verses here. Chapter 4, verse of 1 Corinthians. This is how one should regard us. Uh, and in us, Paul is talking about himself and Apollos and the various preachers of the gospel who have come amongst the Corinthians, helped plant the church and disciple the believers there. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul begins to define Christian leadership. He gives a definition of the role and responsibilities of himself and Apollos and by implication all who are called to lead God's people. And he gives a couple, uses a couple of phrases here to do that. He says first, um, we are servants of Christ. Paul wasn't ultimately serving the Corinthians, but Christ. Yes, he was called to serve the Corinthians, the, the church that he had planted. He was called to love them and to sacrifice himself for them. But ultimately, he wasn't taking his marching orders from them. He wasn't ultimately submitting himself to their desires, their approval, their needs, but to God. His faithfulness mattered ultimately before God. And then he says that they were stewards, him and Apollos were stewards of the mysteries of God. Now this word translated steward means a caretaker, a protector, a manager of a home who, who works underneath the, the owner of the home, the master of the home. One commentator says it, it, it conveys the idea of delegated authority. So someone with authority over a certain realm, but underneath 
a greater authority. So you can think of perhaps a shift manager in a store who has authority over that shift while that shift is on, but ultimately they must answer. They are under the authority of the store manager or a store manager who has authority over the store, but ultimately they are under the authority of the district manager or, or whatever. And so when we put all this together, this, these terms steward and servant, the idea is that Paul and others who lead and teach God's people ultimately don't answer to those under their charge, nor, do they, nor are they free to do whatever they want. Right? They don't answer to those under their charge, nor are they free to do whatever they want. They answer to God. They are stewards of God's purposes and priorities. Namely, to proclaim the gospel. That's what the, the term mystery there, stewards of the mystery, is getting at. Is the gospel. And stewards to help people, the people of the gospel, grow up into maturity. And so all authority in the church is delegated authority. It, all authority in the church is authority under authority. It is accountable to God. And if it loses sight of that and, and rebels against that, then it loses its authority. Right? There's not much worse than claiming to be speaking for God or operating under God's authority when you're actually rebelling against God and, and his purposes and his character. This is why some of the harshest warnings in Scripture, one of which we saw in the previous passage last week, are towards those who are attempting to lead God's flock. It is not something to be entered into lightly or done without some sense of fear. Now, if this is the case, if, if we ultimately answer to God and faithfulness to God is what matters most, and our identity and our worth is ultimately before God, then there are two important implications that Paul now draws. And this is where we can begin to see the larger principle that this is not just about leadership, but this is about where all of us find our identity, about who we are, about how we see ourselves. So the first implication, the judgment and opinions and approval of others is not ultimate or infallible and should not be what drives us. The judgment and opinions and approval of others is not ultimate or infallible and should not be what drives us. Verse 3, but with me it was a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, from the context of 1 Corinthians, we know that there were likely a, a number of people in this church among the Corinthians that didn't think much of Paul or his preaching, and they preferred Apollos or, or others. But Paul says he's not really bothered by that. He's certainly not going to change his tune, change his course, in order to win their approval. Is this because he just doesn't care what people think? No, it's because he knows that he ultimately stands or falls before God. And his faithfulness is to the Lord. And he will continue doing what the Lord has called him to do, whatever the results. He knows who he is. He knows what God has called him to do. Now, so far, our culture that we live in, 
would fully support this first part of verse 3. They would say, yeah, Paul, you do you. Don't care what anyone else thinks. Just keep going on your course. Don't adjust your life to meet the demands or the desires or the expectations of others. Now, previous cultures um, did not work like this. Um, and still some cultures around the world today, honor and shame cultures, were quite different. In those places, you were or you are largely defined by your family, your relatives, perhaps your family's line of work, various hierarchies in the society. And you submit to those and you get your identity from those or, or you experience shame if you rebel. But as we've moved from those more traditional societies to the society that we have, we've come to value things like individualism, self-definition, and pursuing any and all desires that we have. It's called expressive individualism. I am whoever I want to be, whoever I feel like I am, and I can express that however I want. And there are parts of this that are, that are not necessarily bad, that are morally neutral. We aren't defined or ultimately judged by others or by any human court. That is not who we are, where we get our identity. Whether it be the opinions of our, our peers, our family, our parents, our church, our boss, our social media followings or lack thereof, our identity and worth don't ultimately come from any of those places. We won't, on Judgment Day, stand before any of those crowds and have their word be the final say on, on us. And that's good news, right? That, that's incredibly relieving. Wherever we are found wanting, wherever we don't match up, wherever we feel like we are forgettable, dismissed, disposable, overlooked, it's okay. When we don't match up to the expectations of our parents, of our friends, of our co-workers, of our boss, it's okay. It's not fun. We don't go looking for rejection. But we don't need to be devastated by it as a Christian because we don't ultimately stand or fall before the opinions of others, but before God. And that's hugely freeing. Now, this is where it gets interesting and where the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world is seen to be radically different because both God's word and our culture recognize this as a problem, that we shouldn't live before the opinions of others, that we shouldn't be defined in that way. Again, our culture recognizes that as a problem. The Bible recognizes that as a problem. But from that point, they go radically different ways. Our culture says, don't let others define you. Define yourself. Turn inward. Be your own judge. Look inward for definition. Paul goes a different route. Last part of verse 3. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. 
for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted or cleared in the right, free from guilt. It is the Lord who judges me. Second implication of God being our final judge and faithfulness to him being what matters most. Your own judgment and opinion of yourself is not ultimate or infallible or ultimately what should drive you. Your own opinion of yourself is not ultimate or infallible or ultimately what should drive you. We tend to think that the answer to the problem of living under the judgment of others is to be our own judge and define ourselves and to look inward. If others have a problem with us, we just need to tune out those negative voices, justify ourselves, listen only to ourselves, convince ourselves that we're in the right. And Paul says that this is equally problematic. That even if he's aware of nothing in himself against himself, that ultimately isn't determinative. That's not enough. His own judgment of himself is not sufficient, is not final, is not necessarily accurate. And for us as well. Just because we think we are right or in the right or Enough doesn't mean we are, because our judgment, our opinion, our own approval is not infallible, is not final, is not the final word, is not ultimately what matters. The book of Exodus in our Bible speaks of a time when God's people each did what was right in his own eyes. And it says that that was an evil time. When everyone was just doing whatever they wanted to do, living out their own truth, following their own desires. And it was an evil and wicked time. And this is not just a problem out there in the culture. You know, it's easy to point fingers and just say, well, this is, that's our culture. No, it's in our hearts and it's in our churches as well. Um, author Jared Wilson, he writes, the biggest problem in my life and ministry is me. And the biggest problem among my many idiosyncratic problems is the impulse, impulse towards self-defense and self-justification. The Lord has been working well on me over the last several years in this area, and I do think by his grace I have gotten better at suppressing this impulse, denying it, even going into situations I know will include much criticism directed at myself, having proactively crucified it for the moment. But my inner defense attorney, a voting partner in the ambulance-chasing firm of Flesh and Associates, is always there, crouching at my door, seeking to rule over everybody by arguing in my quote-unquote favor. We all have this inner defense attorney in us that we keep working overtime. Right? We are incredibly creative in the ways that we can justify and defend ourselves. Have you ever gotten out of an argument with someone and you continue the argument in your head? Do you ever lose those arguments that you continue in your head? No, of course not. You always come out on top. You, you didn't feel justified and righteous in that situation, so you went about convincing yourself that 
well, if you had just said one more thing, you would have been right. Now, there are many reasons we should fight against this impulse. Many reasons we should push back against our tendency to always be defending ourselves, justifying ourselves, seeking an identity and worth merely within ourselves. For one, we don't see things with 100% clarity, right? And if you think you do, you're probably more deluded than most. <laughs> Secondly, we won't have any meaningful growth and maturity if we never, if we only and ever defend ourselves. Third, self-definition is an incredibly shaky foundation on which to build your life. Do we really think that our opinion of ourselves is stable enough, authoritative enough to always control our conscience and control however we receive the words and glances and whatever of others? I think we know this isn't the case. Um, I mean, the whole idea of expressive individualism is that you not only define yourself inwardly, but you have to express it because we actually rely on what other people say. We want approval outside of ourselves. But the ultimate reason we should fight against this impulse to always be defending and justifying ourselves is that we are not our own final judge. God is. And it is his assessment that ultimately matters. So the last part of this section, starting at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, whenever we come across commands in Scripture about not judging, we have to consider what the rest of Scripture says about judging and read these in context. And so here, do not pronounce judgment before the time the Lord comes cannot mean Never make any assessments or judgments of the beliefs or actions of others. And, and certainly never share your thoughts. For one, Paul has just done that for three chapters, given lots of judgments and assessments of the Corinthians. And he's actually going to go in the very next chapter to state very clearly that you should judge within the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so among believers, among those who have this claim to Christ and claim to be following Christ, there is a sort of assessing and observing of one another's lives to see that if it matches our confession. And so there's a way of taking this that looks very spiritual. Well, it's the Lord who judges me, and so no one can say anything else. My faith is between me and God, so your opinion and your words don't matter. But this is really just another way of doing what our society loves to do. Just shoving out any outside opinions and authority and being our sole judges, defending and justifying ourselves. And actually it's worse because we think and perhaps say that our opinion always aligns with God's. And so how could you say anything against that? 
There was a kind of me in the spirit version of Christianity that is really just an adoption of the spirit of our age and a glorification of ourself. Now, it is true that all Christians have the spirit inside of them and are being led and guided by the spirit, but none of us are perfected yet. And none of us have a completely infallible interpretation of what we, of where the spirit is leading us. And we need, in part, others along the way. So what is Paul saying here when he's talking about not making judgments before the time? Well, it seems to be about not making judgments about how, merely on how things appear in the world now, merely based on worldly value systems, but waiting for and living in light of God's final judgment. As we've seen, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were making a lot of false assumptions about the gospel and about preachers of the gospel, and this was based on their view of um, power and greatness. They, they wanted their gospel preachers to be impressive and eloquent and powerful, and when they came, and especially Paul came in weakness, and when the gospel was perceived as foolish, they were tempted to doubt that God was not really working. They made these assessments. And Paul says, don't make these kinds of final judgments merely based on how things seem now, but wait until all is brought into light. On that day, all who belong to God, all who have been faithful to God, will be commended by God. On that day, true faithfulness to God will be more valuable, more weighty than being loved by the whole world. On that day, being received by God will be more valuable than having the greatest self-esteem imaginable. And what is true on that day is true already on this day. So just to sum this up in a very clear way, what matters, not just then, but now, is not if others approve of you, think you're enough, think you're righteous, and welcome you in. And what matters is not if you approve of yourself and think you're righteous and can defend yourself till you're blue in the face. Neither the opinions or of your others or the opinions of yourself are where your identity and worth and comfort and hope lie. And we need to continually fight if we belong to Christ to live as if that were the case. What matters is what God thinks and what God says. Now, this is both bad news and good news. Right? This is bad news because on our own, we are sinners before God, and we don't have his approval. We haven't done enough, nor can we. It's not just difficult to keep in the graces of God, it's impossible. But this is exactly why the good news, the gospel, is so good, because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you and I to earn it and to keep it up. We are accepted and welcomed and approved not because of what we have done or will do, but because of the blood-bought grace of God. The 
the judge has entered himself into the courtroom and given himself for the guilty prisoner. Right? Jesus died for our sins. He was the one who had no sin. He is our judge. And he took our sin on himself. He died to draw us and welcome us to himself. And all the penalties for our, pa- for our sin and rebellion, past, present, and future, have been paid in full. More than that, all of our sufferings, all of our weaknesses, all of our insufficiencies cannot now turn him away. Cannot turn his judgment against us. And so if we belong to him by faith, we can look forward to the day of when he will be our judge because he will commend us. He will receive us with joy, delight in us, speak over us words of love and favor. Here's the thing. Letting other human beings be in our final judge or attempting to be our own judge ourselves and just defend and justify ourselves end up at the same place. They end up doing the same thing. Either we, either we are arrogant and proud whenever we're measuring up, or we come despairing and devastated when we realize that we don't measure up. We, we, f- we shift between one and the other. Both the opinions of others and the opinions of ourselves are flimsy, unstable foundations on which to build our life. But living under and for the Lord's approving judgment enables us to be both confident and humble at the same time. We can humbly let God's word assess us. We can humbly let others speak into our life receive correction, and not be devastated by it. We're, we're able to repent of sin because our identity isn't based on living up to some perception of perfection. At the same time, we aren't necessarily given to change course at any pushback, at any correction, at any rejection. We can, like Paul does here, persevere faithfully even when not received well by others because we know that their judgment is limited, isn't final, isn't necessarily accurate. To put this another way, living under the blood-bought approval of God enables us to neither make too much or too little of what others say and think. And enables us to neither make too much or too little of what we think. That is, it frees us from both self-doubt and insecurity and pride in thinking that we're always in the right. But more than that, it frees us to rest in and live out of the love and pleasure and joy and authority of God. It frees us for living for the Lord. Who is both our Savior and our Judge. Who even now 
is with us and is for us. And even when we sin, he is standing with us, not against us, fighting our sin with us. We're going to take communion now. And in communion, we recognize that our judgment is in the past if we belong to Christ, that it's already happened in full. And we have nothing to fear. And we look forward to the day when we will be commended by God. Let's pray.